Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In perhaps Jesus' most memorable ethical teaching, we are confronted with a difficult problem. Jesus commands us to love our enemies. He insists that we cannot live in a way that is too comfortable or self-satisfying, but rather that we demonstrate the wrongness of those who hate us through love. When one reads this text, it is not hard to see how someone could become a pacifist across the board, for Jesus seems to suggest that we are to live as he did, all the way to the cross, if necessary. In fact, he tells us to carry our cross so complete is the self-sacrifice to our enemies, and that call may be on our lives. For many reasons, I rebel against our Lord's teaching, and I want to rethink it so that I can resist my enemies in my own way. Obviously, I don't want to die prematurely, so I would like to think that the totality of Jesus' teachings uh, do not only lead one to shrink in the face of opposition, but rather defend the world God has in mind for all of us. That is, I'm hoping that I get to fight for what I think is right in addition to showing love to my enemies. And surely this could be a text that could paint too big a picture of pacifism in the face of opposition. Even those who constantly argue for peace are often in favor of conflict or protest for causes that they believe in. So we have to ask ourselves some pretty significant questions. First, what does Jesus mean by enemies? Are these people who annoy us, or are these much darker forces? What about the use of that word in other parts of the Scripture, notably the Psalter, where it comes up many, many times? For example, Psalm 143, verse 12, "'In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Destroy all my foes, for I am your servant.'" There are many verses like that in the psalm. Psalm 23, you prepare a feast in the presence of my enemies. So, do we want God to vanquish our enemies, or do we love them? Or both in some way, right? I think that when Jesus is preaching in Luke 6, I don't think that he has the same idea as the, the enemies conveyed in the psalms. In the Psalms, the enemies presented are spiritual enemies, usually, literally forces of darkness who seek to overthrow the rule of God and place themselves on His throne. And against such enemies, there is only one response, and that is to fight them with everything you've got. It is completely right to ask God to vanquish such enemies, and we are not to just roll over and let them have their way. 
For these spiritual enemies, these demonic forces in the world, they destroy families and destroy communities and destroy churches. So I refuse to believe that when confronted with enemies of the darkest origin, that Jesus' advice is to turn the other cheek. No, we never give the devil safe quarter in our homes, in our minds, or in our hearts. So who then is Jesus talking about? Well, I believe these are enemies of a lower origin, those who would thwart us personally or socially or economically or politically. Israel, after all, was occupied by the Romans, and while a kind of ceasefire had existed for decades, the threat of taxation and destruction was never too far at hand. There were, have definitely be, uh, had been uh, interactions with Roman officials, and these pagans were certainly the enemies of the Judeans. But Jesus isn't saying to do nothing. He is saying to resist, but to do so in a particular way. He is laying out a path of peaceful resistance. Christians are to demonstrate the way of the cross by suffering for what is right. And in such suffering, we appeal to the image of God that is imprinted onto the soul of our enemy. This is why Paul quotes uh, Proverbs in Romans 12 when he says that if your enemy is hungry, then feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Strange idea. What does he mean? Well, we make our enemies aware of the hellish fire that they have played with by being an enemy of the good. And through our suffering, we lead them to repentance. But is there ever a time to fight? After all, if good people sit by and do nothing, the enemies of God will surely take advantage of the opportunity to march ahead with their diabolical schemes. To take the easiest example, when the Nazis intimidated the church, most of the church was too afraid to fight back. It could be argued that their silence contributed to the carnage of World War II. There were a few resistors, to be sure. Those who, when the Gestapo slipped into the church in the middle of the service to, to see what was being preached, dared to preach a full-throated, uh, fully-orbed gospel message that included a rebuke of Nazism. But by their own confession, they were far too few in number and too late in acting. So no, in the face of tyranny, the church should not be silent because it is far wiser to resist tyranny in when it is proposed in peaceful times than when it is imposed through war. But bringing things back to the local level, there is no question that this teaching should determine our course of action. 
Remember, he's not proposing no, uh, no defense, but a method of defense. But those who, for example, impose taxes, those who regulate our business, those who educate our children, those who mandate health care, those who service in business and leisure, those who oppose our Christian faith and heritage. In all of those interactions, we are to demonstrate the love of Christ in our kindness, our charity, or perhaps our willingness to peacefully walk away. Some examples. We homeschool our children because HISD is the enemy of my children. Not a demonic evil force per se, though I do wonder about some of the board members, but they do share or they do not share our values. That's where we drew the line. That was our choice. A former member of this congregation, some of you knew well, he is the legal counsel for a doctor suing Methodist Houston Hospital. She lost her job because she prescribed alternate treatments for COVID-19. She has openly questioned the financial incentives surrounding the hospital's vaccine-only approach. Now you might say, a lawsuit, man, that sounds pretty bad. Pretty peaceful in the grand scheme of things. It's part of what makes us civilization. We have trials and courts in a process, due process, for those who have been victimized. And yes, the peaceful protest that is the convoy up north and soon in our nation's capital. They are drawing attention to the tactics of smiling tyrants by giving themselves up to peaceful protest. Yes, I do not believe that turning the other cheek is saying to a tyrant, do whatever you want with me. It's more like standing arm in arm in front of a line of nameless, faceless police officers and letting them arrest you when you have done nothing wrong and saying, if you arrest one of us, you have to arrest all of us. While it is certainly an injustice, it is also revealing who is not loving their neighbors as themselves. And I am still optimistic that in such a methodology, in such a revealing, the impression of God's image on those who would control us would respond in love. And it's not just your enemies who benefit when you love them. You do too. For your heart becomes more and more like that of our Lord, who even when he was on the cross, loved and prayed for his enemies. It is good for us to forgive and to love and to pray for those who oppose us, for that is how we grow in holiness and in Christ-like love for our neighbors. If we are not the ones to foster sanity and civilization and peace in a world that is so often driven by nothing but money and power, who will be? And please, let us remember what Jesus did for you and for me. 
We like to think that we are the good people, the people following God. But in fact, we are the enemies of God. We have sinned and offended God. The good news is that is not that we are the good people, but that Jesus loves his enemies. For if Jesus did not love his enemies, he would not have died for you and for me. But in spite of our rebellion, of our choosing and defending sin again and again, Jesus died for us and was risen from the dead precisely so we would not be defined by our sins, but by the death of Christ for our sins. Being those people then, how shall we then live? How do we resist those who are our enemies, all while honoring God? Well, it's a question of continual discernment as no two enemies and no two situations are ever identical. This text, like all of Jesus' teaching, it has to be applied over and over and over again. Pray for God's Spirit to be with you as you decide who your enemies are and how to resist them, and the Spirit will surely guide you in the way you should go. Amen. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When Jesus goes to the mountaintop and is transfigured before his disciples, two worlds are colliding. The real, physical world and the glorified world promised to those who follow Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's creation and revelation in creation from Adam and Noah all the way through Moses and Elijah and beyond. Yet in his transfiguration, he is prefiguring his resurrection, that day that he will be risen from the dead a resurrection that will be ours too. Christians have always lived between these two worlds. This world, this real world with real consequences, and that ethereal plane that will be our final destiny. We can often favor one over the other, emphasizing too much our spiritual destiny. Right? This, is, this is preaching that only ever cares about whether you'll go to heaven or hell, for example. Or our physical limitations. This would be uh, the only thing that Christianity is good for, is making a better world sort of teaching. But it is increasingly clear to me that the conflict in the years ahead for Christians will be centered around reality itself. That is, what is even real? How do we know? And do Christians have a monopoly on reality? Yes, I realize that might sound strange, but we have, in essence, a 
clash of worldviews that can no longer be ignored. On the one hand is the real physical world, made by God, bled for by Christ, and is now experiencing the birth pangs of renewal. After all, we believe that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Our future existence will be bodily, material, physical, a new heavens, a new earth. On the other hand, is a complete denial of that reality. Even the most, what we would think are basic and objective facts. Your daily experiences, maybe even your legal rights, will depend on which of these two worldviews wins the debate. Perhaps Christians have lost sight of this because in many respects our faith is supernatural. That is, we definitely and absolutely believe in the existence of things beyond the material or physical world that we experience with our senses, right? In addition to the many miracle accounts in the Bible and credible miracle accounts uh, in our own day, Christians do not believe uh, in that which is beyond our sensorial experience or even rational comprehension is false. Okay, we, we, we believe in those things. So even though we believe that we are playing uh, on team reality, we often talk about things that might seem too strange to be true, like people being risen from the dead, or miraculous healings, or turning water into wine, or walking on water, etc. And yet the miraculous is not a denial of reality. We say that miracles are just a part of reality. And a future resurrection does not make this brick-and-mortar existence worthless. Quite the contrary. Human life is valuable. The entire Christian claim that God became flesh, it speaks to the value of the real physical world. And it is in this claim that every heresy and every detraction from Christianity is rooted. The claim that God became flesh, in essence, that the physical world is what we say it is. Islam, for example, argues that God could not and would never become flesh because it is beneath him. The Gnostics, more on them in a minute, they basically argued that the physical world was the problem and that escaping the physical world was the goal. Indeed, the physical world being inherently sinful or intrinsically evil or even an illusion altogether is not as rare an idea as you might think. Christian science is really a theological cult version of Christianity. They do not allow their members most famously for seeking medical aid because they believe that all evil and pain and suffering are not real, but illusions. They refuse medical help because they view it as a lack of faith. Overcoming pain and illness, and even death itself, is not a matter of medicine, but the mind. So say the followers of Mary Baker Eddy. 
In a modern take on the denial of reality, it's really not too uncommon a view to hold that everything we see and experience, or think we see and experience, is just our moment in the matrix. No less than Elon Musk holds that it is entirely possible that we are in someone else's simulation, essentially pieces in a grand computer game. Now we chuckle at the absurdity of that, but absurdity is the order of the day. That is the clash of worldviews between reality and some version of fantasy land. Hypocrisy has become so normalized and dishonesty so common that we have to laugh to keep from crying. Biological males are now considered women in Olympic events if they just take hormone blockers for a single year. Actresses who are credited in movies using their given name at birth but later identify as the other gender, they have all of their credits retroactively changed for movies they acted in when they were still women. In short, the belief, this idea, that we can identify, that's the word, identify with something other than what we are, it is a denial of basic reality. And the idea that there could be, and perhaps will be, legal punishment for arguing that point should be incomprehensible to Christians. Christians are the only people who can argue for reality, because only Christians acknowledge that this is God's world and we just live in it. And part of the good news, you know, is that reality always wins in the end. Give it enough time, reality always wins. I mentioned Gnosticism before. Gnosticism is very much alive and well today. It just doesn't go by that name anymore. But Gnosticism was an ancient set of beliefs. There's many flavors of it. It was kind of like locusts. Okay, they, they would go around and devour one religious group after another, trying to absorb, say, the beliefs of Christians into the Gnostic system. Uh, there's good reason to believe that John's gospel has Gnosticism in the background. All of that talk about light and darkness and flesh and the spirit. These are Gnostic sort of uh, categories that John is addressing. That is, he is speaking against it. And while there are many flavors of Gnosticism, the the basic point uh, of it, and you can read quickly about it, I wouldn't spend more than five minutes of it on, on Wikipedia or something, but the basic point is that it is trying to escape the illusion of the material world, the problems of the material world, and it is very much alive today. The problem with Gnosticism is that if ultimate value and meaning are divorced from physical reality, then that can and has led to a disregard for the welfare of others or to hedonistic 
indulgence. Basically, you become a glutton or a stoic, right? because the physical doesn't matter, the spiritual is all that matters, so you can overemphasize the physical and become a hedonist, or you can, uh, you can try to starve yourself, in essence, of, uh, in, the, in the eyes of the Stoics. So one leads to rampant immorality, and the other leads to needless suffering. Because why would you help someone in need? It's good that they're divorcing them from themselves the desires of the flesh, right? In elevating the spiritual life over the physical life, the material world is seen to be less real, less real than the life of the mind. So you see how we're maybe starting to connect some dots. Yeah, there are two ways that other transes, that is other than the transfiguration, other transes are making this division clear. As I hinted at already, transgenderism is the belief that one's physical body is of less importance than what one thinks their body ought to be. Transhumanism, which is philosophically linked to transgenderism, is the belief that escaping the limits of the material world, that is the future that we're working for. And of course, in their view, it's a godless uh, world that they are going to be escaping from and to. Both are acts of rebellion against God, denying reality and working for a false reality. Milder versions of these two transes ideas, because those are sort of extreme views that a lot of people would say, no, no, I won't go that far. But they've embraced milder versions of this lack of reality, and it has certainly impacted the devaluation of marriage, the devaluation of having children, the devaluation of participating in civic life. That is where we are seeing the consequences at a more grave level. So the Christian claim is nothing less than this. Only by understanding Christianity can one understand reality. When another world is put forth as the ideal, and it includes some decidedly non-Christian ideas, we need to understand that we are fighting for reality itself. And we have to be bold enough to say, on the strength of our Christian conviction alone, that all of the transes of the world are wrong because they deny reality. With all of its pain and with all of its limitations, we invite the world to accept reality. And I, take, I hate to tell you this, but that will be something like trying to deprogram a cult member. That is how steep this battle really is already. But the good news is that the transfiguration of our Lord, this was the disciples' promise, and it is our promise that reality is not so bad. The transfiguration uh, points to a future of overcoming reality's limitations. Or you could say it simply points to the full reality that we'll finally know, one that includes resurrection. So the news isn't all bad here on Team Reality, not at all. 
We admit that our genders are limited to only two, and that one day, it is true, these mortal coils will cease to be, but in Christ, his transfiguration points to a future that is glorious. Our mission is to help those who have been sold the lie on this good life that isn't real, to bring them back to reality. Might we have the courage of our convictions to stand for nothing less than the reality of God and to receive this blessing of the transfiguration, the promise of a glorious resurrection in this real life. Amen.